Welcome to the Techmo Podcast, where we talk all things tech and startup in the Denton community. My name is Kyle Taylor. And I'm David Bruno. Let's get started. Welcome to the Techmo Podcast, where we talk all things tech startup here in the Denton community. And today, we're sitting here with Marshall Culpepper, CEO of Cubos. And Marshall is also former president of Techmill. So, glad to have you back in the house, Marshall. It's exciting to be here, finally. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, I'm going to go ahead and kick the table. Um, David, <laughs> take it away. All right. So, we were just discussing that we don't want your full history, but can you talk us through what brought you to Denton and then uh, everything that's happened since? Yeah, I like to describe it as a uh, gravity, basically. It just sucked me into Denton. Um, <laughs> you know, we were pretty typical, me and my wife were typical, sort of like wanting to live in a house and find cheaper land, a bigger house. And we ended up um, over the years in uh, this little town called Shady Shores, um, about 15 minutes south of Denton. And uh, we bought, we like put in the offer, got accepted. We were excited we were going to build our first house like from scratch. And then it turned out we were within vicinity of this cool place called Denton. And uh, it didn't take long for me to realize I need to be here like all the time. And so, um, you know, I've been working in startups most of my career. And at that point, it was like, okay, um, I wanted to be involved in like setting down roots and building a community from where I was. So I really started getting involved in the city and, and co working and a, a lot of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, it was just a matter of time before. Um, I started my own company uh, within the city, and then that was the impetus to move to Denton proper, um, and that's how I ended up living here as well as uh, having my business here. Yeah, I mean, so I I first met you um, when I was going to UNT, mm-hmm. and uh, the College of Arts and Science ran this ideathon thing, and uh, you were one of the mentors who showed up to one of the sessions where we just show up to like four or five sessions, and if one of your teammates didn't show up, you were disqualified. So <laughs> out of like the fifteen teams, there were like six of us at the end. And uh, you came in and talked about uh, how to fail fast and <laughs> all those other things. And like everyone in the room, I remember looking at this girl next to me when you were like, fail fast, fail hard, and like do it again. This girl was like, just dumbfounded. Like, what? What do you mean we're supposed to fail? Like, <laughs> that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my first interaction with you. And I think you were working for um, Accelerator at the time. So, mm-hmm. uh, you have a long history of Silicon Valley companies. So what, I mean, what kind of got you into this whole like Valley, like tech world anyways? You know, I, I wasn't, um, explicit. Like I didn't go out trying to say, I want to be a Silicon Valley startup guy. That wasn't really my intention. Um, what I really, really love and what really, if you want to say anything that defined my career is uh, open source software. Um, I started doing open source as a teenager, um, started contributing code in the nineties. And, um, I, Along my career, I had an amazing opportunity in uh, 2004 to get, I got basically a job offer from this company called JBoss to um, work full time on leading a project that I had been actively contributing to for the last year before that. And uh, that changed my life in a lot of ways because it was, I was now doing open source software for money, um, <laughs> which you don't really typically hear about. Um, and I, it was a startup as well. So it was, they were venture capital backed. Um, and then within about two and a half years of me being hired, we got acquired by Red Hat. And so I had like within short order of my first open source job was working at Red Hat and, and we got an acquisition so that, you know, I got a decent exit. I wasn't like a early, early employee. So it's not like I made bank, but I'd made some cash and was able to set down, start setting down some roots. Yeah. And so, um, that was my first experience with like a high growth, early stage startup. And uh, from there, it was like, I wanted to keep doing it. I wanted to keep doing open source and I wanted to keep doing high growth uh, tech startups. And so after my sort of time had run through at JBoss and Red Hat, it was Accelerator, which was the next one. I was actually the first employee at Accelerator uh, after after the founders and a few other uh, team teammates that they left off uh, in Atlanta. But uh, they, they relocated to Silicon Valley and they're like, we need a guy to like help us with this new idea we have. And so Titanium was born and... Uh, we, uh, I mean, I, I built the team and the product from the ground up and, um, all open source. Again, we grew huge, like within three or four years, we were like 200, 200 plus people. Wow. I think. Yeah. So, um, and then if so I could go out the whole history, but that's basically the thing is like, I really 
got um, passionate about open source software and what it meant for humanity as in general. I'm not really a free software person. I'm more of an open source person. Right. And I can go over that detail if you like. But basically, for <laughs> me, that's what it all. That's where it started. And it just so happens that the last, you know, um, 13 years of my career have it's been a renaissance for open source. Like there are a ton of open source commercial companies now. It, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be this very niche thing. And so um, I think being in the right place at the right time is a lot of it for sure. And then just like really being passionate and driven to make it happen is the other part. Yeah. And yeah. and I know you talk a lot about the Red Hat model and like, you know, so for the people listening to the podcast, they might not know who or what Red Hat is. Yep. So could you explain what Red Hat is and, yeah. and how they got started? Yeah. So you can compare Red Hat to Microsoft pretty directly. Um, Red Hat is kind of the anti-Microsoft, at least if you think of Microsoft in the 90s. So they make an operating system called Red Hat Linux um, and it runs on servers all over the world. Uh, in data centers. Basically, um, they're, early on, they really weren't sure what they were. They were like this user distribution where anyone could install it on their desktop and have a desktop operating system. But as they went on and they got traction, they decided they wanted to do it in, in enterprise, like in the server. Um, and that was where their big money maker was. So now they're like a $3 billion company. You know, they, they deploy open source. They're one of the biggest open source projects in the world. They have a huge customer base. They're in data centers everywhere. And basically, it's the operating system that runs the cloud. I mean, you could kind of think of it in very kind of, you know, terse terms like that. Um, and But they've, they've been doing it since the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, you know, the in terms of the open source model, like, it's kind of counterintuitive. Open source kind of implies free. And so, like, how do you make money on something that's free? Um, and that was honestly what Red Hat did for the world, uh, more than anything, I would say. I mean, their business is incredible. Uh, but even more than that, what they did was they showed the world that open source could make a big, profitable business. Um, and there was always like the hypothesis that it could happen, but Red Hat was really one of the first ones to make it possible and make it true. Uh, there are a few startups before Red Hat that like had big exits, and so they were like notable because they were some pioneers as well. But Red Hat's really the first one that said, this is real and we can make money on a sustainable uh, basis with it. Um, and so that inspired, you know, the whole next wave of open source entrepreneurs and like everyone that you guys know and have used in your day-to-day -day programming is probably like directly inspired by Red Hat. So companies like MySQL and, uh, you know, uh, even Joint and, you know, the companies that have just made some of the more, you know, impactful infrastructure software in our space. So, yeah. Yep. Do you have any questions to add to that? So I've been doing research into open source and sustainable yeah. open source, and mostly <laughs> my research is listening to podcasts right now. Um, and, and someone else made a statement that Red Hat's model is not replicable because sure. they their time it was mostly timing based. Like sure. obviously Linux came out. There's not going to be another Linux anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I don't think, at least on the uh, server side. Yep. I might be wrong about that, but do you, do you agree with that statement or what do, what do you think about that? Yes and no. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that there'll ever be another Red Hat. I mean, specifically for what they're doing uh, in their in their segment or in, in their market, I think that might be totally true. The, the model, though, doesn't necessarily need to be in that market. That's maybe the fallacy there. The, the thing with any startup or any really successful company is what you just said, right? Like, no one's going to, I mean, you know, maybe one day someone, Uber will get replaced, but these are companies that don't get replaced overnight. They, they dominate their markets. Um, it's, to me, it's like um, when you find a market, what you're really talking about is what market you're playing in, not the model that you're using necessarily. Um, and so I think, I mean, I don't even have to think. I mean, the evidence is there. There are plenty of sustainable and successful open source companies that have built tons of value outside of Red Hat and since Red Hat uh, exists. So I don't think it's a matter of if. I think it's just a matter of how you're how you're taking what they've done and iterating on it, and then what market are you serving with your product and your and your model? Right. <clears throat> yeah. So it's not nonprofit, or it's not no profit. It's like no. nonprofit, right? Like, <laughs> well, it's not even nonprofit. I know. It's, I'm just it's finding other ways to monetize the <laughs> no. system because yeah. that, that's something I'm really trying to wrap my hand, head around lately is making sustainable open source yeah. software, and it, it can't be the software itself. So I'm looking at like uh, Basecamp and mm -hmm. uh, Rails. You yeah. know, you have to have something that brings in the money to sustain development, or right. it's just it won't last. That's right. Um, so a really interesting discussion I had um, a few months ago. I was at a um, like a, a private dinner with a few like open source people in San Francisco, and um, you know it was amazing to me a lot for a lot of reasons. One, there was a lot of people I respected in the room that have been just making hay in open source since the early days. 
but you know the it used to be like you you can just look back in the last five ten years it used to be people would say can open source work as a business model and now and that was that was the topic of discussion but now what's happening in these circles is not is open source a profitable business model it's like how can we they're like oh well how do we beat 100 million in revenue with open source that's the real question now. Yeah. Which is, that's a totally different ballgame to be in. Now you're talking about a billion dollar valuation business based on open source. And there are several of them uh, right now. There's, a, I mean, it, you can actually probably count it on more than two hands, which is incredible to me considering where we came from, which was like hackers in a basement, like doing it for the, for the love of it, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think like it's not a matter of if or does it work. It's a matter of are you serving the right market with your product, and then do you have the right value adds, like you said, to make it scalable? Um, and so, you know, um, I know we're not asking about Cubos just yet, but we take a pretty similar approach to Red Hat in some ways, and then in other ways we don't. So we offer support as well as on top of our product, and then we offer uh, cloud services that are subscription based on top of our product. So that's where we make our revenue outside of our open source uh, project itself. Yeah, it's interesting how <clears throat> some how. Uh, Different open source projects kind of build a revenue model around that project, right? So yeah. working in Drupal, right? So the people who guy who made Drupal, Trees, uh, started a company called Acquia. So Drupal is a content management platform. Mm-hmm. While the tool itself isn't necessarily like you can't sell it. I mean, you can't you can sell it. It's GPL. Um, but you know, people like me make money off of supporting that software. But Acquia the company injury started makes money off of hosting that software, Mm -hmm. right? So they're a hosting company. And if you look at automatic and WordPress, it's kind of the same scenario where you have wordpress.com versus Mm wordpress.org. And even then automatic has built integration tools inside of WordPress where you're not paying for WordPress, but you're paying for like plugins and marketing support and SEO tools and things like that on top of that. So it's kind of like it's integration. uh, Yeah, it's integration. Yeah. And then even Red Hat kind of like was original. Yeah. Yeah. So rel, uh, rel is a good example actually. So there's two products really there's Fedora and rel, right? So Fedora is the open source community project that anyone can use and download and whatever. And then rel Red Hat enterprise Linux is like Fedora plus 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 all those <laughs> proprietary features you don't get in Fedora, basically. Yeah. Um, and and in Cubos, we're starting to do that. We're kind of early with that, but we have our whole open source product that has open source hardware support. But then there are certain vendors that are talking to us about, oh, can we have like a custom feature that exports our hardware? It's like, well, yes, you can, and we can charge a license fee for that, <laughs> um, right? So that that is definitely some way we're going long term, probably with Cubos as well. Like especially because. Where we are in our space, we we're pretty low level, so the drivers are pretty secret sauce for the hardware manufacturers. Right. So we have to just be careful not to step on their toes. <laughs> so. so you keep talking about this Cubos thing. What is this Cubos thing you're talking yeah. about, Marshall? Yeah. So we have this cool little satellite software startup here in town. Uh, we, you know, basically the idea is uh, if Red Hat um, and Microsoft had a baby and sent it to space. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the imagery is just hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we're kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, very similar to Red Hat's um, Red Hat's early idea around um, support and SLAs for the enterprise server market, uh, but rather than for like servers in, a, in an IT cloud, it's for satellites in space. And uh, we have uh, what we're working on this year is a, a, a ground station uh, mission operations uh, cloud service. So that's our it's kind of our bread and butter where we actually make subscription revenue based on people using our onboard software and the cloud-based software to control their satellites while they're in operations. For people who know nothing about anything you just said, yeah. could you explain what a ground station yeah, mission yeah, is? Yeah, so uh, just you know, in very, very high-level terms, satellite is orbiting the Earth, and uh, it needs to communicate with something on Earth to make it useful. And so there are, um, you've probably seen dishes on people's houses to receive satellite TV. It's not fundam- too fundamentally different from that. It's just a, a dish or an antenna that's connected to a computer that's literally just talking to, listening for and talking back to the satellite. Um, and so it can be a little more complicated than that. Obviously, like especially for a low Earth orbit, you have these what, what are called tracking ground stations. So they literally like rotate or point at where, where it is in the sky as it's passing over. So uh, most people think of satellites as the stationary thing you can point to that's a what's called geostationary orbit where it's always in the same spot in the sky uh, relative to our to our vantage point 
Um, in Leo, they're really close, so they're going super fast, and so you have to just track them. Um, but anyway, it's fundamentally it's not much different from an administrative console in like a in like a enterprise Linux or like even in a Drupal world where you've got like metrics you want to look at, you want to make sure everything's healthy, you want to make sure you want to be able to like restart this process remotely, you know, crap like that. Those are the kind of things we do, but in a more sort of satellite focused world versus like a just like a general purpose computing platform. So what was kind of like the the start of Cubos? Like what were you trying to solve? Like when you <laughs> started like building satellites in your garage um you know like most entrepreneurs i think um i, I had a itch that i needed to scratch does that make sense <laughs> like so i um i got this amazing opportunity again to work at a startup that was um, trying to put arduinos in space and they basically didn't know what they were doing um you know they sorry they had an, a mechanical engineer and electrical engineer who knew what they were doing in terms of the satellite and the engineering of the spacecraft but they didn't realize how much software work they had to get done. Like, they're like, oh, well, we'll just put an Arduino IDE and like we'll connect it to a ground station and it'll work, right? I'm like, no, not, not exactly. If you ever did the Arduino IDE, you, you know, can you imagine that? Like, <laughs> attached to how does that work? Like, you know, you're missing some fundamental steps here. Um, and so I convinced them uh, to hire me basically as their first employee. And um, within less than a year, uh, I had built a team of uh, three or four, and we had sent three CubeSats to the International Space Station that were deployed. And then I was ruined. So, like, <laughs> yeah, so at that point, like, once you put something in, no, here, here's what happened. Okay, there was this photo of me holding this CubeSat that, like, I used for my profile picture. I've seen it many times. Yeah, it's a, well, it was on the verge, and it's like it's made a lot of rounds, but it's a great photo, and I just love it. And then there's another photo, which is equally famous, but it's not, it doesn't have me in it. It has that CubeSat being launched from the robotic arm of the International Space Station. That's cool. And so, literally, you can just compare and contrast. Here it is, me holding it. Here it is in space. And, uh, that moment kind of changed my life irrevocably. Like now I can't not work in space. <laughs> um, and so for me, um, the company that I was working for, uh, you know, it was called NanoSatisfy at the time. It's Spire now. They ended up pivoting to do a more data, um, like a big data play, which is fine. It was actually really cool. But um, I, I was really captured by this idea of how could I use my software and open source experience um, in the satellite industry and like really work on this space problem in a new way that people hadn't done before. Yeah. So that was the inspiration for starting QS. Yeah. So, so I have a, a more entrepreneurial based question than technical. Yep. Um, so when you were starting QS, you were still working for Mozilla at the time, uh -huh. right? And then we were also doing tech mail. And so your life was basically non-existent, right? Yep. And so what, what, how did you get to the point where you decided, um, you know what, I, it's time to leave Mozilla and just fully commit to Cubos at that time. You know, there are a few different factors at play. Um, number one was like being able to pay everyone, uh, you know, like it, we could work as hard as we could on the side, but like it would be hard to do it completely for free for forever. So um, once we got our initial funding, it was a lot easier to step out and everything like that. Uh, we also wanted to downsize and like cut our expenses. That was a big impetus for, you know, moving to Denton. We, we downsized our house, we downsized our yard, everything, and dropped quite a bit of money off our mortgage and all that. So it made it much easier to do that. Um, so that, you know, very practical reasons, honestly, like we just, um, a, we wanted to get the, we wanted to get the business opportunity down and the because early on in the startup, you don't really know what you are. And so we went through an accelerator, we went to the pitch day, and all of that kind of culminated in, let's, let's do this for real now. That's cool. Yep. Um, so talking about, like, I know we've talked about this many times, or you, at least you have, about raising money <laughs> yeah. like in the area, right? So, yeah. so you're a new startup, uh, you have a great idea, you're going out and talking to investors, and you guys really wanted to raise money uh, in North Texas, right? But but that was a challenge for you. Yeah. So like, so how was that a challenge? And then how do you guys overcome that? And like, what did you do after that? It's a great question. You know, um, I've had a lot of time to reflect on that. And, you know, there's two things that, and you're never sure what exactly is the reason for, for investors saying no. They don't always tell you. Um, but it's pretty clear, like, um, my idea was probably a little too uh, advanced or too uh, too risky for most investors here in the DFW We're going to send junk to space. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Like, we're going to send, yeah, we're going to send, you know, code. Like, we're going to try to be Microsoft for this industry when most investors in this area know nothing about the industry. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I would say, you know, just as much as that, when we were pitching here in the DFW area, we were pretty early on. And so... 
I, I know some of it was like, I, again, I didn't really know what I was doing early on. Um, and going through an accelerator really helped me refine my idea, refine my pitch, everything. Um, and so that was a I know that was a part of it. Um, but what I don't know is, um, like why they all didn't invest. Like most of them just didn't say why we did get two investors here in Dallas. Not that we don't have any, it's just yeah. that they were, you know, they weren't the more traditional sort of VCs or angel networks or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I don't, you know, I think that the Dallas, uh, fundraising, um, you know, the, that, that community has really been improving over the last several years. Uh, in fact, we know a lot of people now that are like coming in like, Hey, yeah, let's talk, you know? So, I, I see it improving all the time, um, but it was definitely a challenge for us. We were like in 2015 is when we first started fundraising. Yeah, so. yeah. And you went through the Lightspeed Accelerator. Yes, yes. Lightspeed Innovations is and, what it was called. And so this was a little bit yeah. different because it was more like a virtual accelerator than like an in-person one. So that's right. So, so what was that experience uh, for you guys? It was amazing for a few reasons. One is that we got to be what was called the beta cohort. We were the first cohort of this accelerator, so we got to be really intimate with the uh, with the founders of the accelerator, and got some really we. Had both got really good feedback ourselves, but we got to provide really raw feedback and they were, they were developing their program around our experience. So we got to really have a lot of input into the process, which was super helpful. Um, and then also, I mean, we landed our first lead investor from the pitch day of that accelerator. So, I mean, it was, I mean, I mean, it, I would not be where I am without that. There's no two ways about it. I mean, and not just because we got the investor, but also because the materials that they put us through and the boot camp and the, all the basically MBA, let's do this. Like, <laughs> I needed that as an engineer. I didn't know what I didn't know about yeah. business. I still don't, I think, but yeah. it's gotten better. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, you, when you said we, and so, uh, tell us about your team. Like what is your team yeah. composed of and how, how did you guys start? That's a great question. So, uh, you know, tech mill is actually the answer. Um, if you go on <laughs> yes. TL, TLDR, yeah, yeah. Um, so, the night that we kicked off, so just going back to Tech Mill first, just a second, when the night we kicked off the fundraiser for the co-working space, um, we were doing this big event at Eastside and we had, you know, a ton of people show up. It was great. Uh, you remember, yep. uh, that was the day I met Jesse Hamner. Um, Kevin Roden pulled me aside after the speech and said, Hey, meet this guy, Jesse. He loves radios. He loves space. And at the time I was doing like uh, high altitude balloons, which were a little bit more accessible. I'm like, Hey, you want to do a high altitude balloon together? And if you guys know Jesse, he was all over. It. <laughs> uh, so, um, and then it quickly turned into a conversation about, um, maybe we should actually just do a CubeSat. And then there were some ideas around maybe doing a, an early mission. But um, that being said, uh, that's how I met Jesse. And then with Tyler, so Jesse and Tyler Broder are my are co-founders. With Tyler was the, um, you know, the, the secretary, not the secretary, the, uh, the treasurer of the tech mill board at the time, running our finances, keeping the books and everything. And I really got to know him really well because he was so instrumental early on in founding tech mill and getting us up and running. And so it was that sort of, I like kind of trusted him implicitly already. And, and I knew that he knew how to run a business because I'd seen him with his dad. His dad is an entrepreneur as well. And they've both been raised that way. So I was like, you know, he's like second or third generation entrepreneur. I really trust him as a person. And I guess I saw a lot of potential in his ability to uh, communicate, whereas that's not my strong suit. And so uh, I, for him, it was like a very, like very complimentary skill set that I just didn't have. He knew how to do the nuts and bolts that I didn't know, and he knew how to go talk to people and, and sell them on on a product, which was not again not my forte. So, <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. And so, so uh, you guys have a team of. So we just hired our ninth uh, ninth employee. Uh huh. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah, and uh, this is our first. Uh, so everyone we've hired up to this point has either been in Denton or Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex somewhere. Um, but now this is our first employee in San Francisco doing remote work for a Denton company. So we're we're reversing the equation, <laughs> which really I can't I can't oh, tell you. Show it's like achievement unlocked, man. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like we're 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 turning the tables a little bit. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, what was the first product that came out of Cubus? Because I I think the first time like when you guys were explaining, I was like, are they a hardware company? Are they a software company? First time I explained it, I may not have known. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. So what was your, what was your first product? And like, where, where have you guys evolved from there? So, um, the name of our company Cubos comes from a very simple, um, bastardization of the word cube or CubeSat and OS. So cube OS or CubeSat OS, uh, and then put them together. So, uh, the first idea and you kind of the bedrock of what we're doing is an operating system for satellites. It's, um, you can kind of think of it similar ways to Linux. It's like a distribution. So we take different open source 
projects and a lot of our own custom code, and then we package it all together as one uh, one integrated product. So we have two operating systems actually. One is called CubeOS RT. It's a real time operating system that's for like really really low end hardware. It's not like Surface RT, is it? No, no, no not okay. at all. Yeah, not at all. It's more like um, it's you know it's more like maybe like an IoT embedded OS like. Um, I don't know if you've ever used uh, Contiki or uh, Riot or something like that. It's more along the lines of like very low-level embedded C code uh, for very specific embedded microcontrollers. Uh, and then CubeOS Linux is our Linux distribution. So that is like just a direct page out of the book of Red Hat there. So yeah. like literally we have our own stripped down embedded Linux distribution. And uh, the idea with both of those is they just support different hardware um, hardware. Um, uh, profiles. So we have some boards from satellite manufacturers we support that are like really low end, and then we have other ones that are like central processing units of the satellite that you know need Linux for that. So um, yeah, that's those are our primary products that we've been working on for the last year, and we've been kind of at a very regular cadence pushing out new releases of our open source RT and Linux. And uh, you know, like I said, the the money we just raised was to go build out our cloud infrastructure. So that's what we're, that's the next stage. Still what Dave's people. working on? Dave and yeah, a few others. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. And the new hire we just made too. And <laughs> potentially others we'll see. <laughs> yeah. It would be hilarious. Is it hosted on Red Hat? Cause that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> that would, that would be nice and poetic, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, uh, oh, I had a question. So, so as a person who is not a hardware guy or yeah. level programmer at all, yep. I mean, what, what does this kind of look like as a product for a person who like, the people who are buying your product, right? Like, mm -hmm. what is the problem they have, and why do they find Cubos as the answer? So, have you all ever done Android development or iOS development? Either yes. one's fine. Okay, so when you do Android or iOS development, you get this. You have a device already that has an OS on it, and then you download an SDK. You write your app for the with the SDK, and then you use the tools to put it on your phone or put it on your device, and then play with it. Whatever. Our our entire thing is like completely modeled after that that idea. So the way CubeOS works is that it comes pre-installed on satellite hardware. You download our SDK, which has all the source code for all the components of the operating system and all the things you need to make your applications and the tools to deploy it on the satellite hardware when it's in your, when it's, so it's literally just switch out a cell phone for a satellite board and it's pretty <laughs> much the same thing. Um, and so the, the key difference with us is that we, we, in a satellite, you've got multiple computers. So they have subsystem, what are, what are called subsystem communications, which is like basically how you interact with the different computers. And then you've also got ground station. So those are part of the things that our, our platform provides is like integrations with each level of subsystem, each level of the ground station, things like that. So you so. guys have um, partnerships with a couple of like hard like board manufacturers and yep. people like that. So like what what do those relationships look like? So uh, I said earlier that we are like Red Hat and Microsoft had a baby. Um, so that that's the Microsoft side of the the familial traits. Um, so we just taking a page out of what Microsoft did in the early PC industry. They went and partnered with all these PC manufacturers and said, "Ship Windows for us. It'll be good for you. I promise." <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that was that's kind of in a nutshell what we're doing. So. Um, we basically partner with satellite manufacturers to distribute our OS on the hardware, and uh, we do porting work. We support their customers. We, uh, you know, basically give them out of the box integration with our cloud software, all that stuff. And so we have three manufacturers right now that we've signed deals with. And just to give you an idea, in the CubeSat space, which is just satellites that are the size of like a, you know, maybe a box of tissues, in that space um, there are about half a dozen or so dominant players. And so we're actually up to the point, um, you know, roughly 50% of that, of like the satellites coming out of that market are like now signed up using CubeOS on their, as a, as a option on their hardware. And we've got a fourth and fifth one coming online this year. So we will have, we'll probably blanket that market by the end of this year. And then, um, the next for us, like the next big statement is going out to the traditional players where the traditional manufacturers are, uh, and then and then start getting embedded with them. So that'll take us a little bit more time because they just have a longer lead time on those relationships. So you'll let us know when CubeOS Home Premium comes out. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and CubeOS Vista and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. So it's in actually uh, going back to the Android analogy, maybe even more 
comparable to Android because Android does the same thing with OEMs. They they partner with like you know the Samsungs and the um, and the HTCs of the world to um, basically put Android on their hardware, and then um, you know then Google gets money out of its services that run on Android, and then we're we're basically a similar play. So it may be more directly comparable to Android because they um, they have like their own hell that manufacturers write their drivers for, and we that's exactly what we do. So. <clears throat> And you're not mm-hmm. controlling the hardware like nope. on the iOS side. I don't want to control hardware. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not going to come out with a Pixel. No, nope. the Cubos. Maybe <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe we maybe we need to be at Google one day. We'll see. But uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Like for us, the value is in um, being the common platform. And like you know, one of the really really interesting opportunities we have is that in most traditional computing environments, like software is a given as a super important high level thing that needs to be taken seriously but not so in the satellite world. Uh, everyone's very hardware-centric. And so it gives us an opportunity to be the first one kind of telling that story. And uh, the thing is, it's already there. Like, it's so important, it's so valuable, and people just don't see it as a separate concern. And it's really interesting to me because there's so much money being spent on software in this space, but people don't even segment the market that way, you guys. I mean, it's crazy to me. <laughs> like, when you look at um, cloud, I mean, it's all software spend. You know, you, but think about satellites. How much software has to has to work and work well, work really well, uh, and how complicated and expensive that is. Um, and so that's that's really our opportunity is really to reframe the way this industry sees software and to show that it's just another computing platform. <clears throat> it's just another com- someone else's computer. Yep. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a computer in the sky. Yeah. It's exactly <laughs> what it literally. Is. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's, it's very similar to IoT type things also. Yeah. I mean, it is a, the same thing, a very small computer yep. that has a small processor and then yep. uh, it's away from the the rest of the network, I guess. It, exactly. I mean, literally the chips that are in our, some of these satellite boards are the exact same ones that are in like Android devices. I mean, you they're literally ARM you know, with a couple, you know, 500 or a gig of, of RAM. I mean, literally, you could take Android and run it on these things if you were dedicated enough. Uh, <laughs> not that you'd want to. Uh, Android's not the right environment for this thing. But, um, you, you know, I'm saying, like, it's it, uh, that is a large part of why this industry is exploding right now because it's becoming more accessible. The the gains that were won from the mass manufacturing of ARM chips with mobile have really paid off for the satellite industry. So, <clears throat> Cool. Yep. I have a big question, but David, do you have any other questions? I do, but they're big questions too. Okay, well, you do yours then. (laughs) Okay, so uh, one of the things that prompted you coming on the podcast at this point in time was uh, we had a side conversation about hiring a Denton. And you have, (laughs) I didn't know before, but you've grown a a couple, few uh, development teams. So you know how to hire people, which is amazing to me because I wouldn't even, I don't know how to get started yet. (laughs) But uh, I I prompted uh, Step last time about, in Denton right now, if yeah. I were wanting to hire someone, I'm not sure where to get started. And so <laughs> we'd like to hear your experience of hiring in Denton and then what advice you would give to someone like me hiring our first probably engineer. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a great – no, it's a super great question. And I have a lot of thoughts on it. I don't have any definitive <laughs> answers for you, unfortunately. Just a lot of just a lot of like things that I've tried and that have worked. But, you know, I'll, I'll say – I'll just preface with this. I have an unfair advantage in that I get to say you can send your code to space, which like brings people out of the woodwork. <laughs> like we have a lot of applications for for hire, so it's a little for me like marketing is a lot easier uh, than it might be for some. But that being said, um, so you know we kind of took the the really traditional like straightforward route. First off, we went directly to UNT. We partnered with a professor in the EE department and said, you know, we want to know about your best and brightest, and we would love to hire them as interns and bring them on, bring them on board. So we started working with uh, you guys know Nick Tompkins um, and Professor Lee over at UNT, and we had we have we've had two different really great interns uh, come through and like you know one day when we're ready, like we'll probably we'll be hiring those people. Like they they did amazing things for our company. Um, and so that's one, so that's like the long, the long-term focus when you're starting off junior and like laying down tracks and, and building people into engineers, which is something that you have to really take seriously, uh, if you're building a bigger org. And then the other part, like the more immediate, like I need a senior guy tomorrow kind of thing. Um, you, you basically just need to have a good network is what it boils down to. Um, most of the really, really good senior guys are behind corporate or behind a startup already. And so you have to have a compelling enough story to convince them to leave where they are. 
And, um, again, I've, I've had, I've been a little blessed in that regard. Like I'm not like what we're doing is like so exciting. Most people are willing to do that. Um, but that being said, if it's someone, you know, well, then you can make the, make the pitch and you can really talk to them. You know, it's early on, I would say, um, we did a lot of, um, you know, the traditional, like let's post a job requirement on a job board, get, get resumes in, get, um, get people in. And that, that worked out well for us for our very first hire. Um, but ever since then, it's been referral network. Um, and so while we will probably still go through that process as we get bigger, because um, referrals don't last forever, um, referrals have been our biggest source of hire uh, overall. So that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that was your question. I didn't have any yeah. follow-up. Yeah. And I had one, a follow-up, but it fell out of my head. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, there are a lot of amazing people in doing amazing things. And so, um, you know, you probably know a lot of them. You probably interviewed them on this podcast. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, your job is to basically convince them to work for you. And so you have to be you have to be a good marketer for your company, but you also, like, honestly, you just got to shell out the cash for the good people sometimes. Right. Um, so yeah. And you've got to, you got to be able to swallow your pride a little bit sometimes. Um, you know, and the, there are a lot of things like that that are hard to say on a day to day basis, but like you can, can really help you, uh, convince people that they'll have some, some leadership or some ownership of your, of, of your process and of your business. So, yeah, I feel yeah. like tech has been trying to solve that since we've started. I mean, regardless of all the other things we've tried to do, I think yeah. our biggest, our, our, goal all the time has been be like the bug light for all the firefly technical people in Denton. Right. So instead of just uh, them floating off randomly wherever, like let's create some kind of place where they can be together and like meet each other and like, you know, make connections and things like that. And I, I feel like we're, that's like one thing we've been doing pretty well so far. Agreed. Yeah. And one comment you made in our offline conversation was, uh, well, so one thing I try to do is try to do everything the way I would want to do it if in an optimal situation. So right. what I want to do is hire people that are underrepresented in the industry. Yeah. I want to help people in Denton. And, I, you know, I want to do all these things. And right now it's two of us and I need to hire my first person. And I'm right. getting all gridlocked in the, uh, in this where later I can do that maybe. And maybe it's just <laughs> I work on what I can do at this time. Yeah. Yep. But you brought up the fact that even if, if I hire people from DFW and bring them into Denton, then yep. that's still showing people Denton. Maybe they'll choose to move up here because they they have to drive up here every day anyway and see how cool it is and, and yep. all that. Yeah, so two of our engineers are from, you know, not from Denton. They're just in the Metroplex, and uh, they, they love it here. They both love it here. Um, and, you know, even had conversations about moving here with a few of them. Like, it's, it's one of those things where once you get in and you realize how awesome it is, you want to start contributing more to the community. So I do believe, I think the best path forward for Denton in general, just startup community in general is a, you know, high paying jobs here in the city that will hire people that are here, but also bringing more of those kind of people here to recreate those results. Um, and then, I mean, just all the things that come from that, you know, we'll get, but we'll get better, we'll get better places to work here. We'll get more, more people doing jobs here. We'll get pe- more people moving here, all the things that you want to see in economic development. Um, and so to me, like, um, you want all of the above. And I think, you know, Denton is close enough to the whole Metroplex. So you can pretty much cast a wide net. Um, people are like on the South side of the Metroplex, maybe a little bit hesitant, but I've also seen exceptions to that rule. So, right. Yeah. You have anything else? No. Oh, my, my question was totally not that related. I was, <laughs> mine was like a space question. <laughs> it was, it was more or less along the lines of, um, like walking through like what, a what a mission looks like in terms of whenever someone buys, like, like they contact Cubos and they buy services from you guys. And like, what does that look like? Yeah. Uh, in a timeline. Cause it's yeah. not a short, it's not like I can go send me to space tomorrow. Right. Right. No. So what is it? What does the mission look like? That'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> we're, we're getting there uh, one step at a time. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, just a really big picture. So you decide you want to send something to space. You've got something, let's say a sensor or whatever it is, your, your awesome ideas. Um, the first thing you have to do is uh, buy, um, either buy or make your own satellite hardware. Um, beyond just the sensor that you want to send up, you've got your entire suite of satellite computers that you need. You I need. can get these parts on Amazon, right? 
More or less, not Amazon, but there's actually, there is a website called uh, CubesatShop.com and we are listed on CubesatShop.com if you want to go check it out. Uh, it's literally just a list of manufacturers and their, and their satellite parts that they sell. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, there are a few ways this goes down, but the, the most easily to explain way is that you buy what's called a satellite bus. It's basically like, imagine if you're buying a PC, like a prefabbed PC, like without the graphics card and you're going to go put your own graphics card in. It's kind of like that. It's like, it's got an empty space for whatever your payload is. So it's like all these computers that do like attitude control and onboard processing and radios and, and solar panels and a EPS board that like manages your battery states and all this stuff. So that's like pre-canned and you just buy it all in one package. And then you also need to get a launch. So you're buying a, a slot on a rocket basically. Um, and some companies can do both of those things. Um, actually one of our partners does. Um, and so basically you go out, you get a quote and where Cubo centers in is like when, when they send a quote, we're a line item on that quote. We're like, Oh, the software is a line item and you purchase maybe this proprietary license for this little thing, or you purchase this, this subscription for the service, or you purchase this, uh, support and it comes pre-bundled with the hardware when you, when you purchase it. Um, then that stuff gets made for you. It's sent to you. You do all your integration of your payload. You do all your software development. You do all that stuff. And then you do what's called a final integration, which is like literally putting all the shit together in a final flight form. And then that gets sent to your launch provider who then does another round of integration, this time with a deployer or directly with a rocket. And then that's when, and at that point you've got enough time to go get ready for launch and then rocket goes up. So it's, you know, the time frames are vary, but the, about the fastest you can do a launch is like maybe six months if you're like super, super agile wow. and, and hungry for it. Um, there's a lot of like licensing that goes into play, like FCC licensing and things like that. Um, but typically, um, on the more realistic scale, you know, most companies will take between nine months and a year uh, to get a cube set up. And then uh, for like bigger, more complicated missions, it could be much longer than that. I mean, the tradition, the traditional satellites can easily take five to 10 years. So, <clears throat> okay. So I have a question that you mm-hmm. said FCC mm-hmm. and I'm sure Daniel could probably answer this question yeah. better, but so you're talking like you have to get all these FCC licensing things, but it's like once you're <laughs> out in the atmosphere, yeah, Where's the government control in that? <laughs> well, they don't control the, anything about the satellite. They do control the companies that own them, though. Mm. That's the thing. So, I mean, regulations uh, are for for people, not for not for machines, right? So, <laughs> while they can't technically, well, there probably are technically things they can do about it, right? But um, I don't want to go into anything like that <laughs> right now. Um, but no, from a more practical standpoint, there are. I mean, they can they can find you, they can whatever. Right. So you don't want to go through that as a business, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Which obviously like I've heard Daniel talk about many times going to these export control conferences yeah. and sessions and yep. learning all about the legal of that. There's, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, it's a highly regulated industry. So it's not just like, Oh, I need these frequencies to be okay for my satellite to send and receive on. It's also like, I, Oh, this country can't buy this. Like literally I cannot legally sell them this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's some, there's some interesting legal sort of things you got to work around there. Yeah. Especially when you're open source. Yeah. Uh, I don't, okay. So I'm not a lot of space questions. Uh, should we go? To, are you done? Do we need more? We, we've got a little more time. So I might ask another, go for it. Another larger question. Okay. So you have a lot of open source background, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I've said that my I've recently been intrigued by open source software, plus how it's sustainable, plus what makes a great project. So yep. lately, I've been looking at things like Rails, uh, Swift, Apple's new language, uh-huh. uh, WordPress, successful open source projects that have funding in different ways, mm-hmm. um, and trying to say what makes these things successful. What do you think makes... Like, what are the key factors in an open source project being successful? Um, that's a really good question. I think um, the most successful projects tend to own the problem space that they're that they're trying to um, have provide a solution for. So, and that's not always the case, of, but they may own like a very substantial chunk of that problem space. So, what do you mean by own? The so, yeah, space? yeah. So, this is more maybe even a, a business theo- um, business idea, but. Um, Red Hat, you know, basically owns, uh, you know, on-site cloud infrastructure software. Like there aren't really any other major players in that space on the enterprise side. There are open source ones and free ones that try to compete, but typically Red Hat is kind of the predominant player in that space. Um, 
when you think about like web frameworks, like web runtimes and stuff, there is like a handful of them and they basically play to the different technology stacks. You've got Node.js, you've got Rails, you've got, you know, C-sharp.net. Uh, you know, there's a handful that basically control their fiefdom of that overall space, if you will. Um, so I, th I think that when it comes down to it, open source projects are the most successful when they can own a substantial chunk of the market that they're trying to, that they're trying to, um, <clears throat> that they're trying to address. Um, again, that's a kind of a business minded way to look at it, but I think it's, I think it's true. I mean, there are successful open source projects that are like totally volunteer driven that don't really have a business model that are really there because there's enough passionate people that want to work on it. That is also a thing. Um, but if we're specifically talking about commercial open source projects that have good traction, it typically it's about a problem they solve usually better than anyone else or just they've got the most traction and it's no one else is really going to catch up to them at any time soon. <clears throat> and do you think that, so in those ones that I mentioned, well, probably not WordPress, but Swift and uh, Rails, yep. there's one person who started it, who right. had a vision, said this is the way it's going to be, especially with Rails. Yeah, this very is much the way it's going to be. Yep. Do you think that's that's important or do you think that that it, it doesn't matter and that's just how those ones worked? You're talking about the BDFL. Um, so BD, uh, Bene Benevolent Dictator for Life. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I, I think... Uh, it isn't, I don't know if there's a general answer to that question, honestly. Like, you've seen so many successful open source projects do that, but you've also seen a lot be much more democratized, if you will. Um, and so I, I don't know if there's a good, I think it just depends on the structure of the leadership of the, of the project. I do think there are benefits to both ways of doing it, obviously. Um, but yeah, some of the most successful ones, like Linux is a really good example. Um, you know, uh, obviously DHH and, and Rails and, uh, you know, uh, to a certain extent, uh, Ryan from Node.js for a while, although he's sort of taken a little bit of a backseat to a little bit more of a community control at this point. Um, but, you know, I, I do think, it, I think it's a viable way to go. I just don't think it's the only way to go. And right. I don't see problems with either way. I just think it, you need strong leadership no matter what. And just it's a matter of how strong is your your community, like, you know, quorum or how, how strong is your BDFL. <laughs> right. Because yeah. someone has to point, we're going this direction right. and everyone go that direction also. Otherwise, right. you're not going to have a real product. Well, if you've got a good leadership team that has that is driven towards consensus, that can also produce that effect. Right. Uh, the Eclipse Foundation actually is a really good example of that. So uh, Eclipse is a very commercially driven open source project that is an IDE. We all know, you guys know Eclipse, I'm sure. Um, and it's while they do have a director and everything, generally speaking, the project's broken into sub-projects. It's very like it's very much like action-oriented at that level. It's it's people that are literally in competition with each other that are deciding where this product's going. Uh, and it works really well. Um, so. Yeah, actually, that's, that's kind of how Drupal works. So Drupal yep. has multiple uh, subcommittees for each one, and there's even the Drupal Association, which is the nonprofit, nonprofit foundation that makes money uh, to put on like the conferences and things. And they have a technical subcommittee. Like There's a team who, who literally makes the decisions for infrastructure changes. Um, like There was a big thing a couple of years ago about uh, Drupal is all hosted on their own Git server, and they're like, why don't we just put this on GitHub, right? Well, there's a lot of decisions into going into that, and whenever you're con like contributing new modules and in integrating those with issue queues and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then there was a committee that is all about, uh, it's like the Drupal governance something committee that basically this thing came up um, last month because of this whole like kicking people out of the community thing, but you know, and there's Dries is your BDFL guy, or at least it's, you know, suppose, um, but there's actually a committee to handle relation, like, like problems in these relationships in the community where that BDFL kind of doesn't come into play at all. Right. So they're all outsourced to these subgroups of volunteers, but, yep. um, but that means you have to have an engaged community because if there's no one there voting on board positions to make sure that the right people are getting right positions then it's like, what's the point? Right. So, it's a it's a really interesting solution, at least how in the Drupal community they manage it. So yeah, yeah, it is interesting. There are a lot of uh, examples of that too. Even um, not Linux itself, but the Linux Foundation is another good example. That's where Node.js lives now, and quite a few projects are actually now going to the Linux Foundation. They have some pretty good infrastructure there. Yeah. So <clears throat> cool. Yep. Final question. Yep. Okay, uh, so the last question is, what advice would you give to someone starting out in the industry or still in school to get where you are today? Uh, which industry we're talking about? Software? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. right. Take we it broadly. This is Marshall. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Take it as broadly as you want. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And just to note, Marshall is not like 
a school guy. No, right? I, I didn't go to college. Yeah, right. right. So, yeah. so it's funny how it's like yeah. people who are in school, what should you not go? <laughs> Drop out immediately. I would never say that. I would literally never say that. Um, while I, well, obviously this was the best path for me. Um, I don't, I actually don't feel, uh, that it's responsible to say like, don't go to college. Like I, I think everybody's path is different and there is a lot of value in college for for certain people of doing whatever they wanna do. Some people are trying to get a PhD and wanna go do scientific research. Yeah, go to college if you wanna do that, god damn. Um, <laughs> otherwise, like, I mean, I'm not gonna be able to go do scientific research, right? Anyway, uh, okay, so um, yeah, for me, like getting started, like what, what advice would I give? Um, just like do shit. Like, I mean, I know it sounds so simple and basic, but like really like just wear the Nike hat, just do it. Like, don't uh, be afraid of your own shadow, get out there, write code. Don't be afraid of what people are going to think if you, if you suck, cause they're going to tell you, you suck. And then that's an opportunity for you to improve. Um, you need to look at it as if you, you know, you're building just like everything you're, you're trying to improve yourself, your, your ability, your, your, your job, your standing in life, whatever it is, like just look at it as if it's a continuous opportunity to make yourself better. If you if you go with that perspective, I think you'll be successful in the long run. Um, you'll have b- probably bumps on the way, as I did. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like just long term. Like I, you know, I started programming at the age of eleven, and so it's not like I, you know, it's not like I fell out of the sky with this ability. You know, I worked hard on it for a really long time, um, and eventually I was able to get a job and and all that stuff. But you need to you need to just be persistent and keep working um, and putting your stuff out there, putting yourself out there. Uh, people get afraid of just they, they get tied up with like, oh, will I be accepted or you know don't don't worry about this stuff. like let it let it slide because even if they don't like it, that's critical input for you. You need to know what they don't like about it and you don't know what they won't like about it until you try. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had an issue with uh, teaching this last semester and my my students really get caught up on what should I learn or what language should I do and stuff and I say the same thing just do something in what matter. language you exactly. know yeah. whatever's easiest whatever's lowest, least friction do yeah. it and yeah. then go from there <laughs> it's, it's exactly right I mean you know there are obviously a hundred reasons to choose language X over language Y or whatever but like you said I mean what matters more than anything is you're doing it <laughs> you're getting experience you're trying it out you're playing with it you're learning that's what matters and uh, as long as you're learning, you're going to be good. So just don't stop learning. That's yeah. the that's important part. <laughs> don't stop. Yeah. Okay, sorry. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Well, do you have anything else, David? That's all I got. I have nothing. Cool. Mar- Marshall, this is great. This is great, yeah. You're so smart. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> so if anyone wanted to get a hold of Marshall in real life and not in space, mm-hmm. uh, where would they find you at? Um, you can see me on Twitter at uh, Marshall underscore law. So that's an old IRC handle that I've had for decades. Um, it came from Tekken, uh, Marshall Law. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Yep. And then uh, uh, you can get me on email at Marshall at Cubos.com, K-U-B-O-S.com. Awesome. Yep. Well, thanks for being here today. Yeah, my pleasure. This Thank you, great. guys. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, for all you guys listening to the podcast, so this is the Techmo Podcast. We do this every two weeks. Um, you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can subscribe to us and like us and share us and all those other good things. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you guys. Did I forget anything? I don't think so. Okay, we'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Bye. 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 And we discussed... Marshall and I discussed offline possibly skipping over some of the stuff that he is since he's well known already. Mm-hmm. If you want to, we don't have to. That's I mean, I don't I don't know what it is, but you can feel free to not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to maybe speak bigger picture just so I don't go too de- into details. Okay. I also have right. that tendency. Yeah. So I I'm more interested in I... like the past four years, four yeah. or five years than the past like, twenty. Right. Right. <laughs>